Hi, my name is Gilda Ramos. I'm with the Office of the Public Guardian. I'm, I'm one of the Assistant Division Chiefs over at the office. I am over the LPS case management side. So today, I'm, I am going to give you an overview about conservatorship. Okay, how many of you by a show of hands are familiar with LPS conservatorship? For the most part, if all of you guys are FSP providers, you know, we have at one point or another interacted with each other. So I hope that you can at the very least take away from this presentation a general overview about LPS conservatorship, okay? So the Office of the Public Guardian was created in 1945 as a, as a separate entity. We are recognized generally as the oldest and largest public guardian office in the state of California. Uh, our office is authorized to act by California statute. We are a program within the LA County Department of Mental Health. So uh, you probably already know this, our director is Dr. Jonathan Sharon, and he is also the public guardian for LA County. And we are located in the Civic Center. We only have one location, and that one location serves all of LA County. In our office, we have approximately 100 deputy public guardians and about 15 supervising deputy public guardians. And uh, we are divided, our office is divided into three sections. We have LPS conservatorship, uh, primarily for individuals who are mentally ill, uh, probate conservatorship, and, and under probate conservatorship we handle all issues not considered to be mental health issues, and we also have our fiscal and administrative services section. So what is conservatorship? Conservatorship is the term used in California to replace the term guardianship. For the most part, well, almost everybody knows what guardianship is, but in California, we use the term uh, conservatorship. It is a court proceeding to appoint a legally responsible person for somebody who is unable to provide for their personal needs or to properly manage their finances. It is a civil proceeding, and it requires proof of need and the attendance of all involved parties. When I say attendance, it means uh, the individual has to appear in court. And we know that for the population that we serve, that can be a challenge from time to time. Uh, I'm going to explain to you the general effects of conservatorship. Conservatorship's the responsibility of making financial and personal care decisions from the client to the conservator. It imposes on the client significant limitations uh, on their civil rights such as you know, where they're going to live, you know, their voting rights, whether or not they can enter into contracts, and whether or not they can make their own medical decisions. Uh, but despite of all these restrictions, which are great restrictions, conservatorship provides the greatest guarantee of protection for our clients' interests. All conservators are considered fiduciaries. That means that every single conservator over at the Office of the Public Guardian is considered a fiduciary. And what is a fiduciary? It is indivi an individual in whom another has placed the utmost trust and confidence 
to ma manage and protect uh, property as well as their money. We are in a position of trust and we are held to the highest standard of conduct by the court in handling all conservatorship matters. We have supervision on all of the actions that we take and we are required to file accountings. For LPS conservatorship, we are typically required to file accountings every two, year, two years, but if the conservatorship terminates at the end of conservatorship, we are required to file an accounting. So there are several advantages to having conservatorship in place. One of them is that there is core supervision and protection. Conservatorship also ensures the safety and well-being of the conservatee. It also clarifies the responsibilities of the conservator and it clarifies the rights of the conservatee. It also provides stability for the conservatee and accountability for the conservator. Uh, there are some disadvantages, of course, associated with cons the conservatorship process. One of them is the process can be time-consuming time and complicated. But I want to clarify that the process for LPS conservatorship is not a lengthy process. From beginning to end, from the, ti from the time a 5150 is done to the time that we are appointed conservator, the process takes um, 47 days, correct? And uh, so most of the time people think that it's lengthy because they are probably familiar with the probate conservatorship process, which can be lengthier. The court process can be costly. When you are talking about probate conservatorship, if you hire your own attorney, you're looking to spend on the cheap end at least $5,000. It can run into the tens of thousands of dollars depending on the length of the, of the actual process. Um, the public hearings, they can be embarrassing to the proposed conservatee. They can also be a source of stress to the client. They can be a source of stress, tension, and conflict, not only for the proposed conservatee, but for all the involved parties. And there's always, there's also the implication that the individual is being stripped of their civil rights and of their independence. So we have um, four types of conservatorship. The first one is LPS conservatorship. It is also known as mental health conservatorship. The key to remember is that uh, it is for involuntary mental health treatment. Probate conservatorship is protective services for dependent or older adults. The key to remember is that it offers protective services but does not, office, uh, I'm sorry, does not offer or provide the conservator authority to consent to involuntary mental health treatment. We have limited conservatorship, which is for adults with intellectual disabilities. And what we have to remember for this type of conservatorship is that regional center needs to be involved because they are the ones who do the assessment to determine if somebody is actually ha has that disability. We also have guardianship which is for unmarried minors or for managing the estate of married or divorced minors. And what we need to remember is that conservatorship for these minors terminates when they turn 18. Uh, the LPS program is, is state mandated and funded. 
and it is established primarily for persons with serious mental illness who require involuntary treatment for a chronic mental illness. So how does conservatorship start? It typically starts at the time that a 5150 is done. So welfare and, institution, uh, welfare and institutions called 5150 authorizes a qualified officer or clinician to involuntarily com uh, confine a person suspected of having a mental disorder that makes them either danger to self, danger to others, or gravely disabled to a facility designated by the county for a period of up to 72 hours for evaluation and for treatment. If needed, the person can be held for an additional uh, 14 days. Um, that person can also be placed on a 30-day certification. So usually within the um, Usually during the 14 or 30 day hold, uh, 14 or 30 day certification, a referral for conservatorship is sent by a designated doctor and hospital to the office of the public guardian for investigation. So a risk hearing or, uh, is also known as a medication co competency hearing. It is a facility-based hearing to determine if the person on an LPS hold, other than temporary conservatorship or conservatorship, has the capacity to refuse psychotropic medications. Uh, these hearings are held, must be held at the facility itself. And it typically starts by having the treating physician fax or file a petition with the mental health uh, court. So, the hearing must be scheduled within 72 hours and the current, current treating physician must present evidence at both the facility-based hearing and the subsequent court hearings. Court orders for involuntary medication may be granted following the judicial, judicial determination. When the patient is placed on the 14-day hold or a 30-day hold, the hospital must notify the superior court immediately. Within the first four days of the 14-day hold or 30-day hold, a probable cause hearing is scheduled at the psychiatric facility. And the purpose of that probable cause hearing is to uh, gather information uh, to determine whether there is prob probable cause to believe that the person is a danger to self, a danger to others, or gravely disabled. If there is probable cause, then the person will remain in the hospital. If there is no probable cause, then the, that client is going to be discharged. So only designated hospitals uh, and courts in limited situations can initiate referrals for LPS conservatorship. LPS conservatorship is based on the grave disability of mentally ill individuals. And what is grave disability? It is defined as a condition in which a person, person as a result of a mental disorder, is unable to provide for his or her personal needs for uh, food, clothing, or shelter. So uh, per Welfare and Institutions Code 5350, a conservator may be appointed for any person who is gravely disabled as a result of a mental disorder or impairment 
by chronic alcoholism. Grave disability also includes certain defendants in criminal trials who have been found to be incompetent to stand trial and meet other criteria. So once a referral is submitted by a designated doctor and designated facility to our office, you know, we initiate the actual investigation. And our county council files petitions uh, to the court on accepted referrals. PG is appointed a temporary conservator of the person on, over the person only during the temporary conservatorship period. During this period, we are ordered to do the investigation to determine whether the, the client meets criteria for LPS conservatorship. Again, during this process, our investigators has to look into all viable alternatives. And, um, and at the same time, we have to determine whether there is a need for conservatorship to be established. And also, we determine who can be appointed conservator. So during the investigation, we are going to interview uh, interested parties, family members, significant others. Per Welfare Institutions Code 5354, the officer providing that investigation, that's, that means us, we have to investigate all available alternatives to conservatorship. And we have to recommend to the court, <coughs> we have to recommend conservatorship only if there are no suitable alternatives available. Our investigation includes review of our medical charts, we interview treating staff, family members, significant others. Uh, we also interview our client. We also review financial and other support information that may be available. Conservatorship is established only as last resort because, and this is done because the client loses civil, their civil rights, rights that all of us typically take for granted. They lose their ability to decide where they're going to live, uh, whether or not they can make their medical decisions, and whether or not they can handle their finances. This, the following factors impact whether or not PG is going to file a petition for conservatorship. You know, we have to ask these questions during, during the investigation process. Is the client voluntarily willing to accept the help of others? Are family members or friends willing to take action, willing and able to take action? Can the person cooperate with a care plan to meet their own basic needs? Can supportive services be established and utilized by the client? And has the court authorized medical treatment? So on that last note, our office does not take cases solely because somebody needs um, a, solely because a hospital needs somebody to make medical decisions for that client. You know, there is already a mechanism in place to obtain that decision maker. So per probate code 3202, that probate code authorizes a patient's physician or a person acting on behalf of a healthcare institution uh, to file a petition 
for healthcare decision making and authorization for medical procedures. You know, they don't always like to do that, but you know, that mechanism is already in place. We, when we do the investigations, we look for whether or not there is an advanced healthcare directive in place. Because if there's such a document, then you know, there is no need for somebody else to make the decisions on behalf of the client. Advanced healthcare directive is also known as a living will, advanced healthcare directive, or power of attorney for healthcare. It is a legal document in which a person specify, specifies what actions should be taken for their health if they are no, no longer able to make decisions for themselves because of an illness or incapacity. An advanced healthcare directive can appoint an agent to make care and treatment decisions on a person's behalf, and it gives instructions about healthcare wishes, including the ability to consent to giving, withholding, or stopping medical treatment services or diagnostic procedures for the principal. There are many advantages to having an advanced healthcare directive in place. They are economical to create, uh, it's a private document, you know, it's dignified and personal, it can be put into effect quickly, it is free of course supervision or oversight, it becomes effective on the incapacity of the principal, and it also authorizes the, the agent to make personal care decisions for the principal. The advantage, disadvantages are that the principal must have capacity to execute. There, there's also no control over the finances and it cannot protect the principal from undue uh, influence or from fraud. Uh, the other disadvantage is that the, the agent may just refuse to act altogether. There is no court supervision. There is no court uh, oversight of the agent's actions. And healthcare providers from time to time may refuse to honor the agent's uh, directions. So uh, when it comes to financial decisions, we have to consider the following. Is the client voluntarily willing to accept the help of others? Are their family or friends, again, willing and able to act? Is there a joint tenant in the client's bank account or other property? Is there a substitute representative payee for the client's public benefits? If you know, those things exist, there may not be a need for somebody to come in and make financial decisions on behalf of those individuals. So uh, whenever there is a power of attorney over finances, that person can make financial decisions over real estate, stocks, bonds, banking, insurance, tax matters, retirement benefits, and litigation. So definition of power of attorney, it is an um, attorney in fact or agent to give that individual the legal authority to make decisions for the principal. There are many advantages to having a power of attorney. They're economical to make. They're less costly than having conservatorship, uh, provides ability to personally choose who will make the decisions for the principal, provides family members a good opportunity to discuss the principal's wishes and desires. It can be put into effect rather quickly and there is no court supervision. Uh, at the same time, there are disadvantages associated with a power of attorney. The fact that there is no court supervision, that leaves a lot of room for abuse. 
It's sometimes not recognized by third parties such as banks or mortgage, uh, mortgage lenders. And um, principal still remains, uh, retains capacity to act to his or her own detriment. And the power of attorney, if it is not durable, then it terminates at the time when the principal becomes incapacitated. Another financial instrument that we have to consider is uh, whether or not there are trusts in place. And a trust is an arrangement in which a person settles upon another the responsibility for administering designated properties such as home, bank accounts, stocks, um, called the, the trust estate or cor corpus. The advantages are that it is economical to create. It can specifically choose a trustee to act on behalf of the settler, becomes effective upon the capacity of the settler, prevents co uh, court control of the assets, and uh, it's not supervised by the court, so no accountings are required. Some of the disadvantages is that the settler has to have the capacity to execute. Uh, they may fail to fund the trust. I know a lot of the things that we see in our office is that we find the trust, but when we look at the, uh, there's no assets attached to the trust. So even though there's a trust in place, the assets are out there and the trust does not have the authority to manage the assets. So for example, uh, when we are appointed conservator over the estate of a person, uh, we may find that the person also had a trust, but if there are no assets attached, we can manage her property under that conservatorship because the trust was not funded. One of the most common mistakes that we see is that the person names themselves as the, as the trustee. So what's the point of having a trust if you're gonna do that? You know, another is thing that we see is that they name maybe, you know, there's some significant other and by the time, uh, you know, if your significant other and you may, you're gonna age probably at the same rate. So maybe that trustee is also not able to act when there's a need. So those are very common things that we see. You know, um, for probate conservatorship, most of the trustees that we come across, they're no longer around. So, you know, there's nobody to, to actually uh, act as trustee. Uh, when we do an investigation, we end up generating a code report that is submitted to the court. And it includes information regarding medical information, mental health, family, employment, financial, education, military, criminal, and any legal history of the proposed conservatee. Our recommendation to the court may be to dismiss the case to terminate, you know, we do that, uh, we make that recommendation when we are renewing conservatorship. Uh, we may recommend for a private conservator to be appointed. You know, if there is a family member who uh, we have interviewed and they have determined that they are not only willing, but they are able to act in the best interest of the client, then we recommend them to be the conservator. And, um, the last resort is for PG to be appointed. You know, when we interview family, we ask questions to determine whether they, number one, understand, you know, the needs of the client. Sometimes we have clients who are placed at IMDs, for example, 
and or the treatment team is recommending them for them to go to an IMD. And when we interview the family and we ask them, what is your plan for care for your loved one? The first thing that they will say is, uh, well, I wanna take them home right away. You know, a lot of the time they don't understand you know, the mental illness itself, they don't understand the need. So when we hear that, we're not going to be so inclined to recommend that individual because they just don't have a clear understanding of the client's needs. Uh, another thing that we have to look out for is whether um, that individual is working or what, what is their motivation for wanting to be conservator? You know, unfortunately, something that we see commonly is that you know, they, the family member is using their loved one's income to, you know, for the household. So, uh, you know, that's something that we have to, you know, just keep in mind when we're doing that interview. What is their motivation for wanting to be that conservator? So the legal burden of proof for an LPS conservatorship is the highest. That is beyond uh, reasonable doubt. That's what we have to, to do when we present our report to the court, our assessment. If we are pursuing temporary conservatorship, uh, the proposed conservatee is going to receive a notice of proposed appointment of temporary conservatorship five calendar days prior to the establishment of the actual temporary conservatorship. Our county council petitions the court on, all ac on, on accepted referrals and only the office of the public guardian can be appointed temporary conservator of the person but we are appointed over the person only, not of the estate during the temporary conservatorship. Uh, during the investigation, there is a public defender appointed for each conservatee, and the conservatee can agree to the conservatorship. They may choose to contest by either court trial or jury trial. Do you guys know the difference between court trial and jury trial? You know, the court trial, it's uh, typically the commissioner, the judge makes a decision, and we know what a jury trial is. Um, and the judge or commissioner makes the final determination regarding great disability and the establishment of conservatorship. Once we have conservatorship in place, authority is given to address the condition that causes the grave disability or that mental disorder, which is the mental disorder. If the court orders it, the conservator should have the authority to require the conservatee to receive psychiatric care and treatment. And uh, the public guardian or the conservator is not authorized to consent to experimental treatments. The mental health treatment can be inpatient or outpatient. Um, in LPS, medical authority is limited to the mental health treatment. So, um, it's limited to mental health treatment. LPS powers generally lack the authority regarding medical decisions. I think this is something that you guys are probably familiar with. Uh, if somebody needs an invasive procedure uh, under LPS conservatorship, that conservatorship cannot uh, issue or authorize the treatment without gathering in, uh, pertinent information. Uh, you probably are familiar with the seven point letters which is a psychiatrist's uh, declaration and the physician's declaration. We review those documents to determine if the client has capacity. If it's determined that the client ha lacks capacity, then we actually have to file a petition with the court 
so that the court can grant the public guardian authority to consent to that invasive procedure. However, if that invasive procedure is considered an emergency, then the hospital can actually follow their own internal protocol and proceed with that you know, invasive procedure that may be needed. So a conservator is granted authority to establish living arrangements, and if granted by the court and if appropriate for care and treatment, placement can be in a locked mental health facility. If PG is appointed as a conservator, we typically get authorization or we get powers over both the person and the estate. So conservatorship terminates after one year, but if needed, you know, we can renew it annually. And a couple of months prior to the expiration of the conservatorship, uh, we request uh, the treating psychiatrist to do, to do an evaluation for reappointment. I think during this process is when we, I think we need your assistance the most because sometimes uh, for those clients who are residing at the board and care level, you know, the psychiatrist treating at the board and care may not be really familiar with the client's condition, even though they are able to um, write a prescription for psychotropic medication. A lot of the time we have those board and care psychiatrists indicate that they're not comfortable testifying in court. So then, you know, for those clients who are linked to uh, directly operated FSPs and they're going to the clinic, then that psychiatrist may be more appropriate to testify in court. So uh, one more thing that I like to add is that for the most part, generally speaking, for uh, when you provide FSP services to a client, a client may refuse. Does that happen often? Right, it happens a lot. So that is one of the, you know, big differences between providing uh, FSP services to somebody who is not on conservatorship versus somebody who is. Uh, for, our, for our clients, FSP services are part of their mental health treatment. So, you know, the client doesn't have to consent to the services. So uh, it's a matter of engaging the client to actually uh, be able to establish a relationship and provide those services. Remember that for our population, the public guardian is the one that signs the, the consent forms, not the client. By the way, in case you don't know this already, the public guardian doesn't have any discretionary funds. We have to use the client's own income to pay for their care. So sometimes you know, we get calls asking, hey, what happened to the benefits? Can public guardian pay? No, sorry, we can't. We do not have any discretionary funds so, you know, when that happens, you know, we rely on you. That's why I so appreciate this partnership that we have with the FSP providers because, you know, where we fall short, you guys are able to pick up, you know, for example, with, with funding for those who are placed in boarding cares. And we know that this is not uh, free money. No, we have to make every effort to reinstate the benefits. Once those benefits are reinstated, then those funds can typically be returned. That's how it works. Um, so I do have uh, the second part of my presentation has to do with probate conservatorship. But I know that for the most part, uh, you guys deal with LPS conservatorship. So to very quickly, really quick overview. One of the basic differences between LPS conservatorship and probate conservatorship. Probate conservatorship, anybody can initiate a referral. So we get referrals from law enforcement, hospitals, 
from APS, from the general public. We get referrals from, you know, if you see your elderly neighbor who uh, maybe is having some issues, they can, you know, fend for themselves. You may be the one calling our office to file a referral for your neighbor. So, uh, yes. No, so let me, let me I'll, I'll go into that. So uh, you don't always, if you choose to have your own attorney and pay for a private attorney, there's going to be a cost involved. But at the courthouse, there are workshops, they're offered by Betsetic. So if you qualify, fees may be waived. So they'll walk you through the process. Um, and um, again, if you qualify, fees are waived. Now, if the, you send a referral to our office, we'll do an investigation, but we do not recommend somebody else to be conservator. If the person uh, meets criteria and needs to have a conservatorship, uh, conservator in place, then the recommendation is for our office to be appointed conservator. That does not, there's no cost involved. The cost is only when you hire your own attorney to file for conservatorship. Now, another major difference is that probate conservatorship remains in place for the rest of the person's life. Does not have to be renewed year after year. And uh, another difference is that once appointed conservator, the conservator may be granted um, authority to make medical decisions, all medical decisions. We don't have to go to, back to court to file a petition. We can make decisions regarding invasive medical treatment, but we do not have authority to consent to psychotropic medication. So under probate conservatorship, the conservator does not have authority to consent to psychotropic medication unless that psychotropic medication is being used to treat dementia-related symptoms only, and only if we have been granted dementia powers. Thank you so much, and before you guys go, I just wanna really thank you for everything that you do. I know that um, this partnership that we have with FSP is invaluable. Uh, under conservatorship, we can only visit our clients once every quarter, so we do rely on you uh, for a lot of assistance, so thank you very much for everything that you do. Thanks. <laughs>